Welcome to Creepy Life Podcast, the podcast for all things creepy. I'm Thomas. I'm Sparky. So, we have over 100 plays. That is awesome. to Anchor, so woohoo, thank you very much. Yes, thank you very much. It's a milestone for us. It's huge. We're like five-star celebs now or something. <laughs> um, I did want to say, so we were talking about our reviews last week. Um, it's about the same that it was last week, but I did want to say that it was our friend Alexandra that posted that review, and I wanted to say thank you to her, and she's amazing, and I love her. Also, she's a super talented artist, so you should check out her artwork at alexandratg.com slash art. Cool, cool. Cool, cool. So, last time I talked about the Mandela Effect, so it's Sparky's turn. My turn. Yeah, so what are you going to talk to us about now? Speaking of Alexandra, this was a recommendation from her, and it is the Wineville Chicken Coop Murders. Have you ever heard about this? I have not. I didn't think that I had, but I did a search on, I usually do a search on like a podcast player to see if other podcasts have done anything. And apparently it was in one of the early episodes of My Favorite Murder, and I just didn't remember it, but who knows. Okay. Before I start, I want to do my sources. I went into a really deep dive on this one, so this episode might be a little longer. A couple different Wikipedia pages, Crime Museum, Ranker, Murderpedia, one YouTube video, crimeandinvestigation.co.uk, the Serial Killers podcast, which if you're not so much about like joking around and being goofy while people are telling stuff, that's a really good place to get information. Also, newspapers.com, which is a really cool website that has like old newspaper clippings, so I could actually read like what they said at the actual time. That's cool. And then more Wikipedia. <laughs> so I will also just say on this one, um, we haven't gotten into any super heavy topics yet as far as like child abuse or sexual abuse. So if that's something that's a trigger for you, you might not want to listen to this episode. I'm not going to get into any super big details on anything because I don't like that kind of stuff either. But just be warned on that. I, I think we should probably mark this as explicit, this episode. What? Just, just because. Does that mean I can say bad words? No. Turn it. No, but I think it would give people an idea that there's a little bit more to this episode. Well, maybe if they just listened to the beginning. Okay. <laughs> but, like I said, I tried to really do a deep dive on this one because I kept wanting to look for more details for things, and then that would lead to something else I needed to look into, so... That's kind of how I am on next week's episode. Cool. Alright, this was early 1900s. Gordon Stewart Northcott was born around November 9th, 1906. Apparently it wasn't for sure that that was the actual date he was born. Um, one of them. In Bladworth, Saskatchewan. According to... So I want to know where Serial Killers Podcast gets their information because they had a ton of information that I could not find anywhere. Like literally anywhere else. But they said that his mom had lost her other son to pneumonia. And because of that, it, she didn't really want to have this child. And, like, tried to do whatever she could to have a miscarriage. Like, I guess she would, like, exercise a lot and, like, try to make herself sick. And, like, her husband would beat her, which is great. You know, strangely, this is all things I've heard of pregnant women trying to do to induce labor. Wait. Maybe not the beating part. <laughs> you know, the exercising, you know, spicy foods. So. Yeah. So, the mother's name... So, the father's name was Cyrus George Northcott. He doesn't get mentioned a whole bunch, so don't worry about him too much. So then, the mother is a weird situation, which we'll talk more about later, but it is said that his mother is Sarah Louise Northcott Nee Cothrope. I'm just going to call her Sarah. Those that know what I'm talking about will know, otherwise I'm not going to try and give spoilers, but I'm just asking, is this a Ted Bundy situation? 
Possibly. Okay. It's not confirmed one way or the other. Okay. He also said that his father molested him at the age of 10 and that his mother dressed him in girls' clothes until age 16. But like it was said on the Serial Killers podcast, I don't know why there wouldn't be photo evidence of that because there was a picture that's pretty much everywhere of him as a child. He looks to be like maybe 12 or 13 at the most. Mm -hmm. And he's wearing boys' clothes. Unless it's something they did just at home that humiliated him. That's true, but I don't know. But also, gender norms. <laughs> also, apparently he played with dolls as a child, and according to, like, old newspapers, that caused his homosexuality. <laughs> Your face is great. Well, modern day, we call them action figures. Right. But I would argue that he's not really homosexual, but pedophile. So, like I said, he was born in Canada. His family moved to L.A. from British Columbia in 1924, and he was 18 at this time. He made friends with a boy named Claude Scott, but mostly to get to Claude's younger brother, Philip. And apparently in 1925, Northcott started sexually assaulting Philip, who was 10. It's kind of almost like, well, you know, my dad did this to me at this age. Oh, that's true. You think I didn't that, think of that could have been some of his motivation there? Yeah. When his family found out in July, he was arrested for statutory rape. But according to the old newspaper clipping I found, there was not enough evidence to have him charged. So there's two different ways that this was stated. So one way they said this was that when he was 19, he asked his father to buy him a chicken farm in Wineville. Um, which is in Riverside County, and because he was a spoiled child, he got whatever he wanted. But other sources said that it was a way to keep him occupied after getting in trouble with the law, which I could probably believe that one more. They might have said the other one to, like, kind of throw people off the trail, you know? Yeah. And his father and his nephew, Sanford Clark, helped him build it. Sanford is going to be another big character in this. Okay. So Sanford was 13 in 1926 when he came down to California from Canada. His parents were Winifred and John Clark. Do you want me to tell you the, like, weird family thing now? How would it affect the story? Is it like a, a plot twist? That it came... makes it really complicated. So at the end, his mom, Sarah, talks about how he is not really her child. His sister, Winifred, gave birth to him. So his dad's his dad regardless. But apparently his mom, Sarah, would be his grandmother. His sister, Winifred, is his mother. So Sanford, who came to help, would be his like half-brother. But most places said that Sarah was his mother, so I'm thinking that that was just something that Sarah came up with later to kind of make it seem like he was more troubled than he actually was. I don't know. Either way, I'm hearing banjos. Right? Apparently, they get freaky up in Saskatchewan. I don't know. Yeah. Pedal faster, <laughs> would you? So when Sanford arrived at the ranch, Northcott began to abuse him physically, verbally, and sexually. Apparently, he would also have Sanford beat him up until he got worked up enough, and then he would turn around and beat Sanford. And he wanted to escape, but they were literally in the middle of, like, a shrub desert in California with nowhere to go. I've driven through those. Those are fun. Yeah, I mean, they showed... I watched a YouTube video that was a trailer for a book that was based on this whole thing, and it's, like, literally, there's nowhere to hide. Yep. So, <laughs> just, like, some little shrubs, and that's it. He was held hostage at the ranch for two years. Oh, wow. So, while he was there, apparently Northcott decided that just having Sanford to abuse wasn't enough for him. And he started to kidnap other boys. February 1st, I don't know where this boy came from, but Northcott brought back a decapitated body of a Latino boy to the ranch. 
And this was kind of weird because sources, a lot of them said that it was anonymous. Like they never found out who it was because he didn't have a head. They couldn't prove it. But some called him Alvin Gothia and some one called him Gonzalez. So I don't know. It's a problem with these old timey ones. It's hard to find the correct information. So he forced Sanford to help him deal with the body. Sanford took the head and burned it in the fire pit and then crushed it. Then they threw the body in a ditch on the way to LA, quote unquote, because they had nowhere else to put it. <laughs> I just have a storage shed for those. I don't know about you. Surely they had access to a shovel. Right. Yeah, I don't know what right. the deal, because again, spoilers, that's what happens to the other ones. They bury them. So I don't know why they couldn't have just done that with this guy, too. But, I mean, usually when you read about serial killers, I mean, some of them do leave their bodies to be found. Yeah. But for the most part, they try and hide it. They bury it in the woods. They, you know, dump it in a river or something. Mm -hmm. So just leaving it in a ditch on the way to a major city is just... Yeah, it seems kind of weird. It was found by a farmer driving by the next day. And they were going to L.A. That's where Northcott's family, his mm -hmm. quote-unquote parents, <laughs> yeah. live. So they went there as an alibi. But then, this is what messes me up. So they went there as an alibi, but then he admitted everything to his parents and told them that he killed this kid. But he claimed it was in self-defense. Do, do you know how big this guy was? I don't. That's a good question. What, what, but this kid was, was tiny. Name? Gordon Stewart Northcott. Continue. I'm going to look up and see how big he was. Okay. Yeah, I don't really think you can claim self-defense if you literally take someone's head off. Well, here's a, a photo of him with some cops. So I'm guessing he probably was about maybe 5'7", five, 5'8". Five, mm-hmm. Not the, the biggest person. So, But yeah, still big enough that what could a child really do? Right. Unless the child was coming at him with, like, a machete or something. Yeah, and being that he worked on a chicken farm, you know, he had to have some muscle. Yeah. Like, unless this kid was coming at him with a knife or a gun, I don't really know. And But again, there's no information about where he found this boy, so we don't really know the backstory, but I'm willing to bet it wasn't self-defense, because that just seems ridiculous. I agree. As far as I could find, no family ever, like, reported a missing child at that time, and I was wondering if it was because of immigration issues, because the boy was from Mexico, according to some sources, so I'm wondering if, like, and that also comes up later in this case as well, if his family never reported it to police because they were afraid of getting deported or something, you know? It's possible. I don't know. Then Northcott began looking for other victims, and the main thing he was looking for was vulnerability. So that leads to another reason that I really don't think it was self-defense killing. So March 10th, and this is all in 1928, Walter Collins, who was nine, disappeared. His mom gave him money to go see a movie. Northcott picked him up on his way to the movie theater and took him home and put him in the chicken coop and assaulted him. And Sanford, who's still stuck here all this time, wanted to help Walter, but he didn't know what to do. And he, at this time, you know, was feeling not necessarily happy, but kind of relieved because there's a new boy here. So Northcott was kind of distracted by... So he, he could get a, a moment to breathe. Yeah, but then, you know, he felt guilty about that, too. Um, oh, yeah, I'm sure. He took Walter to the chicken ranch. Meanwhile, Walter's mother, Christine Collins, unleashed a huge manhunt to try to find him. His father thought that because he worked at a prison, former inmates wanted revenge and took him. I guess he worked in the cafeteria and was responsible for reporting a lot of, like, when people did something bad, he would report them to the wardens or whatever. Gotcha. They didn't have any luck, but five months later, a boy in Illinois said he was Walter Collins. When he was brought on the train to Christine, she immediately knew it wasn't him. 
And the police captain, J.J. Jones, told her to, quote, try him out. Wait a minute. Now, is this the part of the story that the movie The Changeling is based mm-hmm. on? Yes, it Cause is. Because I can remember when that came out, a trailer featured Angelina Jolie talking to, like, a press conference or something, saying she, she wanted to find her son. So mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. he said, you know, manhunt, I was like, hmm. Yeah, and in the movie... um, Christine Collins was played by Angelina Jolie. Okay. Yeah, and I wanted to watch that, but I didn't have it on subscriptions, so I couldn't. But I just think it's ridiculous. Like, oh, this isn't my child. Well, I'll just try him out. See if you like him. If like- it's very clear it's not my <laughs> child, it's not going to be my child after a five-day trial. Right. So I guess, I don't know what was going on during this three week that she had him, but three weeks later she brought him back with the dental records of Walters that was to prove that he wasn't her son. And the cops said that she was just trying to get the state to take care of her child for her, and they institutionalized her for being a nuisance. Produces evidence saying this isn't my child. Mm-hmm. And then they accuse her of just trying to get the state to take care of the kid. And that just baffles me as well, because... Why would she be trying to get the state to take care of her child when she was, like, had this big manhunt for him? Like, if if she, he had disappeared and she didn't care about him, she wouldn't have looked. Yeah, it would have been just like every other runaway. Yeah. You know, oh, my kid ran away, I don't care. Yeah. Like, I mean, and that, that was something that was common back in the day. Unfortunately. I know we were taking a turn from our serial killer guy here, but the child was 12-year-old Arthur Hutchins Jr. He wanted to get away from his stepmother, and he thought that by going to L.A. he could meet his favorite actor, Tom Mix, who was a Western actor. I am familiar with Tom Mix. That kid came from Illinois to L.A. saying that he was Walter Collins because he wanted to meet an actor. And he finally admitted that he was not um, Christine Collins' son. Wait, did he get to meet Tom Mix? I don't think so. Oh, poor kid. (laughs) Yeah, poor kid. He finally admitted he was not her son, and she was released 10 days after that. Like, I don't know what is going on here. (laughs) 10 days? Yeah. Why why did she need to be there that entire time? That's weird. It is really weird. Collins sued the police department for $10,800. Which was a good fortune. So, using an inflation calculator, that would be... $161,929.89. $161,929.89 in today's money. So that's... I could live on that for a couple of years. I would pay off literally all my debt. So she tried. She sued the police for that much money, which again was 10800 then. Wow. Um, and she won, but Jones, the police captain, never paid, which is ridiculous. And apparently she tried for many years to get the money, but was never successful. Like we said, uh, Changeling was based on this part of the crime. So now back to the ranch. Walter is in the chicken coop. Northcott's doing his own thing, being a jerk, whatever. So Sarah, his mom, quote unquote, came to visit while Walter was on the ranch. And Northcott tried to keep his mom out of the chicken coop, but she forced her way in. Because I guess when she arrived there, she saw Sanford and she was like, where's Northcott or Gordon or Stewart? Apparently he went by his middle name, but I only found that on one source. So I don't know. That's why I called him Northcott. But Sanford just pointed at the chicken coop and he kind of opened the door a little bit. and was like, oh, hey, stay out. But she was like, nope, I went in anyway. Hmm. Then she got mad at him for kidnapping now. So she already knows about the other murder. And now she's like, seriously, how could you stoop this low? She's like, not mad about it, but she's like disappointed. <laughs> it's almost like she's accepted her kid screwed up. Right. Or her quote unquote kid is screwed up. Yeah, and Samford, of course, is upset that she didn't go to the cops because he's trying to get out of here. Instead, she made a plan to incriminate all of them. She decided that in order to keep all of them safe, they all needed to kill Walter together. Because oh. why not? Yeah. 
It's a good family bonding activity. <laughs> yeah, that's it's just awful. You yeah. have to have a really messed up mind to think that's a really good idea. Yeah, I have no words for that, honestly. Mm-hmm. Northcott killed him with an axe to the head. Then Sanford hit him as well. And then Sarah hit him. After he was dead, they dismembered the body. Sarah and Northcott went inside and they made poor Sanford dig a grave. He didn't want to be involved in any of this. I feel really bad for him. And some sources say the body was never found, but there was graves on the farm. Mm. So I'm not sure, because I think they found the other victims, but not this one. Hmm. I don't know. Um, It's possible that it was buried in a different location. Yeah. You'd think that Sanford would be able to remember that. Especially since that's the first one. Yeah, the first one that was buried on the property. A a lot of serial killers talk about how uh, they never forget their first. And that was the first one that he was directly involved in, too. Yeah, that's what I was getting at. So that was in March. Now, May 16th, there were two Winslow brothers, Lewis, who was 12, and Nelson, who was 10. Northcott took them from a boys' club in Panoma and put them in the coop. Sanford was hopeful now because there was two boys and they seemed like they were like well off that someone would come looking for them but of course Northcott was worried about that. So after three days Northcott forced them to write letters home to their parents telling them that they were fine and they had run away. The first one said they were heading to Mexico. The second one he had them write said they were staying missing as long as possible to become famous. Wow. Mm -hmm. And the letter was written on paper from a book that was found on the farm. Oh, lovely. Mm-hmm. And that's important later. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, then. All right, so Stanford was in charge of, quote-unquote, taking care of them. Well, um, Northcott wasn't doing anything with them, but he wasn't ever left alone with them long. He wanted to be able to talk to them and, like, maybe try to make a plan, but he never had an opportunity to, really. Stanford, I guess, brought them supplies to draw on so they could pass the time, which I think is really sweet. Mm-hmm. I just feel so bad for him. Like, he's just stuck in this really awful situation, and he has no way to escape. So I imagine he's never left alone on the farm by himself. Yeah, because he probably would have made a run for it. Yeah. I mean, what's worse, well, dying in the I desert trying to find help, or... Because, like, if they're, like, in the middle of the desert, who knows how far it is to a, a town or somewhere else where someone else could be. What would be worse, though? Dying trying to make a break for it, or having to stay in this condition? I don't know. I'm wondering, like, if they didn't have a phone... You know, because phones were a thing then. Very primitive phones, but yeah. Primitive. It was just a can with a string. <laughs> or you just use like a... I was thinking One of those tubes like, and just yell at people. Like a megaphone. <laughs> old primitive megaphone. So, of course, Northcott forced Sanford to take part in their murder. Because it was a chicken farm, they had an incubation room with chicks in it. And he took the boys in there one at a time to distract them with the chicks so we could kill them. Which breaks my heart. First, he had Sanford distract Nelson and Northcott hit him in the head with the axe. Then they reversed roles and Northcott distracted Lewis and Sanford hit him. Together they threw them in graves, but I guess they apparently weren't dead when they started covering them up. And I guess they could hear them like moaning, Mm. which is really sad. That's horrible. I know. Then this I only heard on... The Serial Killers podcast, and I tried to search 
But because they had really common names, it was really hard to find anything and I couldn't find any other information on this. But apparently Northcott then decided to try and enslave an entire family. He signed up to volunteer at the Salvation Army to work with children. And I guess they introduced him to the doll family, which is another reason I couldn't find anything because dolls, when I searched their name, just came up with actual dolls. Ella and Jacob, Northcott offered Jacob a job and they agreed to come visit the ranch and check it out. And Sanford, when they got there, thought for sure they would be the next victim. But surprisingly, Northcott took them home, and then when he came back, he said they weren't worth the risk. So I don't know what hmm. made him decide that, but... Interesting. He had one more failed attempt. So he tried to charm a family to get access to their son like he did with that, his other friend when he first came to California. But apparently, it didn't work out. But his sister... Jessie arrived unannounced and kind of threw a wrench in everything. So she said she wanted to visit to see him, but really she was concerned for Sanford. Wait, no. Sanford is her brother, so Northcott is her uncle. Their family tree really confuses me. I'm sorry. Um, It sounds confusing. She said that his handwriting and his letters hadn't changed over the two years that he'd been there, so she was worried that he wasn't getting any schooling, or like she he was forcing him to work instead of go to school, which as far as I could tell was exactly what he was doing. And how old was Sanford at this time? He was 13 to 15. That's... Oh. Sanford told her everything while Northcott was asleep one night, and... This was kind of sketchy. I don't know. I, at some point, Jesse claimed Northcott attacked her, but I couldn't find any details on like when or where or what. But she went home and reported to her mother. This right here is America, like, for real. So her mother, Winifred, called the police in the area and said that her nephew had kidnapped and tortured her son, but authorities didn't really want to look into it until she told them they were illegal immigrants. America. Yeah. So August 31st, again, this is still 1928, the police started closing in on Northcott and his mother. So they fled to Canada and Sanford was left behind and he stalled the police. I'm sure that was something they put him up to. But by September 15th, Sanford told his story to the police. And on September 17th, they unearthed the graves that Sanford pointed out to them. And like I said earlier... I'm still not really sure why they couldn't find Walter's graves because they found the two Winslow boys. Yeah. What was the the timeline between the first boy being buried and the cops coming? That would have been between March and September, so about six months. So it's not that long. No, not enough that he would forget it, unless he was abused enough. He could have had some like head trauma and or it's just possible, you know, PTSD could have blocked it out. That's true. If they're in the desert, it'd be kind of harder to tell. Like, if there's no, like, grass growing somewhere, you know, it might be harder to see, like, dirt that's been messed with or whatever. True. The bodies were buried around the chicken coop, and they kept boys in the chicken coop, which is why they're called the chicken coop murders. The graves were filled with bones, boys' clothes, and quicklime. Do you know what quicklime is? It sounds familiar. Refresh my memory. Okay. I had to Google it. And apparently, most people don't Google this in relation to true crime because it brought up a diff- bunch of other uses, but it is used to dissolve bodies down to the bone. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I really hope that for their sakes, the Winslow brothers were actually dead when they poured that on them. Yeah. Because that's awful. Definitely. Um, police also found a blood-stained axe and hatchet, and Sanford said that they were used for both humans and chickens. A little bit of a cross-contamination going on there, huh? Right. That's the real thing we need to be worried about here. So that was September 17th, now September 20th. Northcott was arrested in Vernon, British Columbia, and Sarah was arrested in Calgary, Alberta, about the same time. 
It took a while for them to be extradited because I guess there was an error in paperwork, of course. But in an interview while he was waiting to be extradited to California, Northcott said he was innocent and he only fled to protect his mother from hearing the awful allegations against him. And she was, like, involved? She was involved and after he killed the first decapitated kid, didn't he tell her everything? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, this is... You'd think that you would think this through a little better, but no. The media nicknamed Northcott the Ape Man because of his hairy arms and back. I really want to know what they were looking at his back for, though. Like, how were they seeing his hairy back? Is he just going into court with his shirt off? It's like, hey guys, check this out. You know, one minute he's clothed, the next minute he's, you know, all hunched up on top of the desk peeling a banana. I mean, it's it's fine. Maybe he's Wolverine. Maybe he's Wolverine. Just kidding. Between November and December of 1928, Sarah was on trial. This was when she claimed that she was actually his grandmother and his sister was his mother. She also said that he was the illegitimate son of an English nobleman, question mark? But yeah, Some nobility in the family line. <laughs> I guess. But the family tree on Wikipedia shows his dad as his actual dad, like the one that Sarah is married to. And she was also not considered a credible witness because of how close she was to Northcott. And she's obviously got some weird stories in her. Yeah, sounds like. Um, So December of 1928, Sarah was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Walter Collins because that's the only one she admitted to. And to be fair, that's the only one I found that she was actually like really involved in, but you'd think that she would at least be an accomplice or something for the other, for the first one, because Especially, she Especially, yeah, she helped with the first one, and then she didn't go to the cops. Yeah. So, so, I'm not sure. At least accessory, I mean. Yeah, accessory. That was a better word. According to sources, she avoided the death penalty because she was a woman. But she had life in prison, but she was paroled 12 years later in 1940, but then died four years after that. I want to know what compels someone to release a child killer from a life sentence. Yeah, I've often wondered that. A lot of times back in the back in the day, it had mostly to do with overcrowding. You know, I mean, how many people back in the day before they really had DNA, before they had surveillance, before, you know, they captured crimes on video, like what happened in Minnesota, how much of it was just, okay, I think this guy did it, let's put him in jail for life. And next thing you know, you got overcrowded prisons. That's true. Also, for the record, if you are listening to this in the future or whatever, this weekend, George Floyd was killed by police officers in Minneapolis, and there have been riots there. And in this day and age, people film pretty much everything, so they were recorded and it wasn't it wasn't a criminal being killed by a cop in a standoff he was handcuffed on the ground and the cop had his knee into his neck so he couldn't breathe yeah it was a pretty awful situation it was a horrible situation anyway back to this case so like i said she was paroled 1940 died four years later january through february of 1929 was the trial of gordon stewart northcott in california and he he does have some similarities to ted bundy he represented himself after firing a bunch of defense attorneys okay he's how old here i think he was 23 22 or 23 but at least ted bundy you know he had gone to school a little bit he was an educated person (laughs) right yeah this guy just apparently it was very obvious that he was not a lawyer, they said. Well, you know, me and my third grade education is going to defend myself, your honor. Pretty much. He apparently grilled himself on the stand, and I would have loved to have seen how that played out. Okay, now... Did you commit this crime? No, I did not. Okay, now, what I'm imagining right now is him 
sitting on the stand, mm-hmm. you know, taking the oath and whatnot, and then running out and playing the lawyer. Maybe even having a, a coat that he takes <laughs> off and on. He does some quick changes. Yeah, he, he jumps on a coat. Now, did you do this on this this day? Then throws the coat on the floor, runs over. No, I did not. <laughs> Back. Okay, but why is there evidence? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that would have been something they could have sold tickets to. And I'm not trying to make light of this. This is really dark. It just sometimes criminals do some really bizarre things, and it almost does come out completely comical. I don't want to ever make fun of victims, but making fun of the killers for the dumb things that they do, I feel like that's justified. One thing that is interesting, we keep bringing up Ted Bundy, but if you have ever, his his court case was publicized mm-hmm. on TV. If you've ever seen the way he acted in court, it almost sounds like, or looks like something that would have been written by some comedians and put into a movie. Right up to the point of actually proposing to a woman sitting on the stand being questioned. Yeah, it just, he was something else. He was something. That is a topic for a future day. So, like his mother, Sarah, gave some very interesting testimony. He said that he abused the boys because he loved them. And I again, that could go back to maybe that was what his father did to him. So he thought that was how you showed affection. Which is gross and terrible. Yeah. And he also said that he was in a sexual relationship with his mother. I'm hearing banjos again. <laughs> At one point, he claimed that he killed as many as 20 boys, but they had no evidence for that, so they couldn't charge him for any of those. That is one thing I find really strange about when they're caught. Well, we have evidence that you killed three people. No, I killed 75, Your Honor. Do you have any proof? No. And apparently that was kind of what he would do. He would, like, give them details, and then when they started to, like, really kind of hound him on it, he'd be like, oh, no, I'm just kidding. So... Was this guy mentally behind? You know, Dude, I think, honestly, he's got to have something, like, psychologically wrong with him in order to do this, you know? Oh, by far. But, I mean, like... Well, even Ted Bundy had a lot of psychological... Why do we keep talking about Ted Bundy in this episode? Because he was also a crazy killer. But, you know, he was also a very intelligent person to the point that the lawyer that convicted him actually said, you would have made a great lawyer. Yeah. So... This guy would not have... <laughs> just throw that out there. Because they had evidence of the Winslow boys being there, it was easy to convict him of that. Apparently, when he picked them up, they had a book. It must have been a library book with them that was checked out to them. Ah. And they had written letters on pages from a book that was there, and they were missing pages. And that would have been the, the good old days when you borrow a book. The librarians would actually write in the book that mm-hmm. you borrowed it. On February 19th, 1929, Northcott was sentenced to death by hanging for the murder of, quote-unquote, the headless Mexican, which I think is awful, but I'm pretty sure his name was Alvin Gothia, or Gothia, Gothia? I don't know. Alvin G. The way that they word that is also very American. <laughs> really. And Nelson and Louis Winslow. He was not prosecuted for the murder of Walter Collins since his mother had already confessed to that crime and been sentenced for it. Would that be a double jeopardy? Because it's not the same person being tried for the same crime. I think with Double Jeopardy, yeah, you would have to be charged for the exact same crime. It's like uh, the movie Double Jeopardy, for instance. (laughs) She goes to jail for murdering her husband, but he had framed her. And so she gets revenge when she gets out, when she realizes he's still alive and kills him. But she can't go back to jail for it because she's already been convicted of his death once. That sounds like a good movie. That is a great movie, honestly. Tommy Uh, Lee Jones, Bruce Greenwood, Ashley Judd. He was only 23 at the time of his death. On October 2nd, 1930, 
he was hanged to death, which to me, they must have been very convinced that he was the one that did it because usually it seems like it's a lot longer turnaround for like death row. And I mean, that could be a time thing too. Like now it's a lot longer, but he was really young. 23 is really young to be put to death. It's making me feel old. I know, right? His last words were a prayer. Please say a prayer for me. Because he's obviously shown to be such a religious man his entire life. And I'm wondering, like, if, you know, it was the crime of killing these boys that made them really decide that they should put him to death. Or if it was more the, they considered him a homosexual, even though he's really a pedophile more than anything. Or if it was because of the incest. All which were capital crimes at the time. Mm-hmm. I'm leaning more towards the actual murders of the kids. Because it wasn't strangulation. It wasn't, you know, quick shot, something like that. It was, they were hacked to death mm-hmm. with an axe. That that's Yeah, and they didn't die immediately. And so he was really torturing them. Yeah, he tortured them to death. So Sanford didn't go to trial for himself because he was only, I think, 15 at the time. They sentenced him instead to five years at the Whittier State School, which was a reformation school for boys in Whittier, California. It's still a place. It's now called the Fred C. Nell's Youth Correctional Facility. I've heard of that. Really? Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, and apparently it was named after the superintendent that was over it while Sanford was there. Hmm. But he was only there for 23 months because he made amazing progress, and he really seemed like he wanted to make a positive difference in the world. Which, to me, is incredible, because he's been through some stuff here. Yeah. Like, awful things. And he didn't become an angry, like, psychopath killer, like a lot of other people do in that situation. He wanted to make the world a better place. So when he was done there, he was deported back to Canada. Do we know what happened to him after he was deported? Yes. He um, went on to have a pretty normal life, actually. He served in World War II. He worked for the Postal Service for 28 years. He married his wife, June, and they adopted two boys together. And the reason he adopted instead of having biological children was because he was afraid to pass on the, quote, family sickness. I respect that, actually. Yeah, it's it's kind of heartbreaking, though. Like, it, it is. But I just, as he said, he served in World War II, considering the things he's witnessed. Yeah. I imagine him just being the badass that while everyone else is flinching, he's like, bring it. He said a swear word. It's just one, and it's not bad. He never planned on telling his family, I guess, about what happened to him as a child. But I guess there was another case around their area at the time where reporters were digging into some old information. And he was afraid that they would find out about him. So he told them at that time. And apparently his son Jerry was at his side when he died. And Jerry was telling his father that he loved him. And Sanford said, why would you? Which is just, it's really sad. That is sad. Like he held that with him his whole life. He was married to his wife for 55 years before he died in 1991. So you weren't even alive yet. I was not even alive yet. So because of the murders, Wineville ended up changing its name in 1931, so right after, to Miraloma, which is Spanish for view from the hill. And they wanted just to avoid the negativity caused by the murders and the media. And it is now part of the Jerupa Valley. Hmm. So, like we talked about before, Changeling was inspired by this. There's also apparently episodes of American Horror Story Hotel, Evil Kin, and Dragnet based on this. I think I've seen the Dragnet episode. I love Dragnet. It was called The Big Imposter, and the Evil Kin episode was Body Farm. Have you ever seen Dragnet? No, I haven't. It had, uh, Sherman Potter was was in it. He was (laughs) the, uh, I guess you'd call him the sidekick. He was Joe Friday's partner. I can't remember his name, though. It's been too long. So, in the movie Changeling, 
I don't know. You, you haven't seen the movie, right? I've seen trailers. Okay. He was played by Jason Butler Harner. Don't know. Northcott was. But I, lo- I googled him and he looks a lot like him. So I think that was a good casting choice. After the movie, there was an author, I didn't write this name down, huh? but if you watch a YouTube video, it talks about it in there, who came to Jerry Clark, Sanford's son, and pushed for him to tell the story. So there was a book released, I think in 2009, called The Road Out of Hell, that was written by someone else, but Jerry heavily influenced. Really, that would be The Road Out of Hell. Really? The, the things like, he, he witnessed. So yeah, this was a heavy episode. This was a very heavy episode. I think next week I'm going to do something, my next turn. Do something a little bit lighter and... Yeah, I have next week's lined down already. And I am mostly done with the notes and everything. It's been a difficult one for me to find the actual truth and not the tweaked retellings. (laughs) Yeah, I think I'm going to do the one that I was waiting to hear back for an interview on because I don't think I'm ever going to hear back, so... And if we do, we can do an update at some point. We can do an update. I actually do have an update about last week's episode. Okay. It was brought to my attention... During the Mandela effect, that when I was doing the mirror, mirror on the wall, I had said that it actually was mirror, mirror on the wall. When actually I got that wrong, it is the actual line is magic mirror on the wall, not mirror, mirror on the wall. I think I originally started saying that, and then I got confused and twisted it around. I'm easily confused, so I don't remember. So I would like to thank our friend Alexandra for pointing that out to me. So Alexandra is a hero of this episode. She is not Sanford Clark. Alexandra. <laughs> it's Alexandra. She's the hero. We are enjoying this quite a bit. Like I said, we have over 100 views. Views. Listens. Listens. Downloads. So thank you so much for that. Please, if you like our podcast, share it with your friends. Yeah, share it with your friends. We are available on almost all major listening platforms. If there's one that we're not on that you want us to be on, please let us know. Yes, please please let us know and we will get that submitted as fast as possible. Yeah, it's a pretty easy process. So we just mm-hmm. need to know because it's on... We're on both of the platforms we listen to, and I think there's like five or six of them that show up on our Anchor, but... Yeah, let me pull that list up really quick. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcast, and Podcast Addict. As Don't forget, w- Other. We are on Other. I'm not sure what, <laughs> what that is and why it's not telling me. Maybe it's just a whole bunch of really tiny ones. Maybe. I will. Um, I will do some research. If you have suggestions for things you would like to hear, please let us know. Thank you again, Alexandra. I didn't remember hearing about that case before, and it was really interesting to learn about, so thank you. Yeah, it was interesting, heavy. It's a I, wild ride. I had never really heard of it before. The way you said that reminded me of Ann Perkins. Ann Perkins? Anyway. It was literally a story I've never heard. All right, guys. If you want to hear anything from us, let us know. Please like our Facebook page, join our Facebook discussion group. Share us with your friends. We want to meet them all. Also, if you have any harsh criticism because, you know, I goofed up, definitely send us an email at creepylifepodcast at gmail.com. Address them to Thomas, though, because I have the world's lowest self-esteem. Yes, address them to me. Also, remember that we're doing, we'll do a bonus episode whenever we get to... 10 reviews has to be written reviews on apple Podcasts. so and we currently have two eight right. more to go and we'll do a bonus episode that you guys get to choose Woo. thank you guys for listening yes thanks for listening stay creepy